years ago, I came across a book that many of you may know called Boring Postcards by the English artist Martin Parr. And uh, what Parr did in this book, it was published by Feiden in a beautiful little edition, was collect the most boring postcards he could find. <laughs> and uh, these are postcards mostly from the period after the Second World War in Britain uh, to about the mid-60s. And they, they are indeed incredibly boring. They're postcards of uh, undistinguished living rooms, parking lots, uh, service stations, motorways, um, you know, architecture that has no distinction whatsoever, and so on and so on. And Parr then published a couple of other um, volumes in the same series, and other people followed suit. And it turns out that there are many, many thousands of extremely boring postcards produced and exchanged in the period between 1945 and when people stopped sending postcards, which I suppose was probably 1980-85. The history of postcards is fascinating, and I actually dwell on it very, very briefly in uh, my book. But uh, my my friend and colleague, Luke Sant, uh, writer that people will know from the New York Review of Books has written extensively about postcards. And the history of postcard exchange is is fascinating because in in many ways, uh, it was an internet before there was an internet, or Instagram maybe, before there was an Instagram. People would uh, self-produce postcards or they would buy penny postcards and send them around to capture moments and share them with their networks. Uh, They didn't use that, that term, but that's exactly what it was. Uh, So when I started thinking about the notion of boredom in relation to images, Parr's boring postcards loomed large in my mind. And uh, and that became a kind of design link. And you can see um, this is the cover image from the book. And and we were lucky enough to get McGill Queens to include a a signature of coded paper color reproductions of some very boring postcards in the book. Uh, Boring postcards became a kind of uh, keynote or touchstone for thinking about uh, what I wanted to do with this uh, short, but I hope uh, provocative book. And the provocation is this. This is what I wanted to do. Uh, I've been writing about boredom for a long time, and there is a very uh, profound and extensive traditional philosophical literature on boredom, which goes back Typically, people go back to Martin Heidegger, to Søren Kierkegaard, to Arthur Schopenhauer, and they, they are indeed the touchstones of the, the modern, let's say the you know, um, 19th to 20th, 21st century analysis, philosophical analysis of boredom. But actually, if you trace it back farther, which I try to do a little bit in the book, uh, you can link it up with, with very old-fashioned discussions of sin in medieval theology and philosophy, the, the sin of axidia or axidi, which is a kind of uh, weltschmerz or world weariness, losing joy in the world, and, uh, and, and why that was considered like suicide, which is in some ways its uh, extreme endpoint, a sin against the Holy Spirit in, in Catholic theology, because you have lost, uh, you've lost faith in the world around us and your life in it. Uh, So I've been been writing about that for a long time, but then I I thought, well, I'm also writing about contemporary technology and culture and following trends in the news about data gathering, uh, potentially 
addictive kinds of technology, especially forms of screen time and the way people interact with them. Uh, I had a, a, a kind of mini revelation right across the street from where I live. There's a guy who is up every night on a, on a huge computer screen playing what looks like a first-person shooter video game from about 1 a.m. every night until 6 or 7 in the morning. And, uh, and I don't know if he's, he's you know, a twitcher or he's a beta tester or whatever, maybe, and, but I think maybe he's just addicted. And he's up all night playing this game. And, uh, and I mentioned, I should say, I, should, I mentioned this to my fourth year class in the previous semester that just ended. And they said, well, just get out your binoculars and figure out what game he's playing. And I said, no, there's a difference between curiosity and voyeurism. And one, one is okay and the other one's a crime. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I think we've, we've all heard a lot of stories about addiction with respect to screen time. And I'm not sure that the addictive language actually applies. I'm, I'm open-minded about this, but I, I wanted to address it in the book. And so it seemed to me that some of the pieces were falling together. The traditional analysis of boredom, which is the first couple of chapters in, in my book, uh, some of this uh, contemporary criticism of screen time, and then, uh, you know, a kind of existential endgame about what we think we're doing with our time. And the, the thing that links them all together, uh, in my argument anyway, is this notion of the interface. And the interface isn't uh, a specific platform or program the way I use it. Uh, I use interface to mean any kind of mediation between self and world. So it might, it might well be a program. Uh, it might be Twitter, it might be Facebook, uh, it might be Tinder, um, it might be a platform, it might be your phone or your tablet or your home computer. Uh, but other things that count as interfaces in my use are, you know, highways, uh, train stations. One of Heidegger's most vivid examples is a train station where he's, you know, obviously writing in a pre-computer era and he's, he's complaining about how bored he is waiting for a train that's delayed. And he walks around and there's nothing to do and he's just kind of, you know, slightly losing his mind in that way that we all recognize, this restlessness of the boredom. And then he says, he had a revelation, it's like, well, it's not the train station's fault. You know, the train station is just a train station, it's just sitting there. But it is the interface that is creating this reaction that he's having, this uh, experience of restlessness and uh, existential crisis. Uh, so like a lot of, uh, you know, the, the good parts of Heidegger, especially circa being in time, um, the, the, the train station examples is later, it's from the metaphysics from 33, I guess. Uh, but before he goes into the late stuff about poetry and building, uh, it's the, the little everyday details, you know, the mundane details about uh, how you, you feel on a daily basis, you know, the mood that you're in, uh, and how that is revelatory of your existential condition. So um, one of the things, if you see the book, you, you might notice that this is my editor's suggestion. Each chapter is headed with a little, what we call the mood report. So each chapter has a different mood. And uh, what I liked about this was, as a writer, I've, I've always thought you, you can sometimes try to create a sense that there's just one mood from, from page one to page n. 
But of course, it's not true. I mean, anybody who's written a book knows that there, it's a roller coaster ride, unless you're Bertrand Russell, maybe, um, <laughs> who just wrote numbered propositions, or Wittgenstein, I suppose. Um, but it, you know, there are ups and downs, and you feel differently when you're writing about different things. And so we included that, we folded that in, and I'm really happy about that because I feel like it makes the book personal and, and accessible in a way that um, a lot of my writing and, and most philosophical writing isn't. Um, so I think I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs>